The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Hello. There we go. Thank you. Uh, Please find your seats and would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. We will be starting in Job 33 and then continuing on in Job 35. But now hear my speech, old Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue of my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You, you say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right, I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer not a man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of man and terrifies them with warnings that they may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest foods. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lightened with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me, be silent, and I will speak. For if you have any words, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, be silent, and I will teach you your wisdom. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask, What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? 
I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? And if you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and you are waiting for him. And now because his anger does not punish, and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opened his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. This is the word of God. Thanks, Mark. Yep. <clears throat> Let's pray. Almighty God, we, we come to you in uh, a series that is heavy, speaks much of suffering. And Lord, I don't even begin to know how that affects everyone in this room. I know that none of us are strangers to suffering. I know that some in our church are particularly suffering in different ways. So, Lord, we, we pray for that. We pray for the physical ailments. Um, I think of Nana in, the, in St. Joe's Hospital right now. Um, and, Lord, there, there are many others of us with different um, sicknesses or injuries. And, Lord, we don't always understand what the purpose is or what we should be doing, how we should be responding to these things. And I pray most of all that you would use these maladies to draw us closer to you. Lord, some are suffering in other ways. Some might have financial troubles. Some might have relational troubles with family members or with co-workers. Lord, some might might just be, um, have a dull heart, just um, whether it's depression or, or just um, discouragement. Lord, sometimes we get caught in these cycles and joy seems nowhere to be found. And our hope, while on paper it hasn't changed, it feels unattainable. So Lord, for, for all these things and for more, for every type of suffering, I ask that you would be at work in the hearts of our congregation. I ask that not only the, the four sermons past, but today and also next week, you'd use them in our lives to help us think more deeply about who you are in the midst of our suffering, to be less confident in our impulse responses, um, to be thoughtful about what kind of friends we need or what kind of friend we should be to others in their suffering. And to that end, we ask that you'd
Open these words for us today, Lord, from, from these chapters concerning Elihu. Teach us much, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we saw that clearly it can be demoralizing and destructive when during times of suffering you have friends who are putting God in a box. And they're interpreting your pain according to a rigid system that they have in their minds. And that means they're flattening your experience. And it kind of steals your hope. Well, Job had three friends like that. Three friends who didn't have wisdom to offer him. But instead, they baselessly attacked his character and they blamed him for his own suffering. That's brutal. And unfortunately, it's all too common. And it's unsettling. Well, also potentially unsettling, though I would say in a much better way, is when wisdom actually does come to you, but it's from a source that you never expected. Uh, So the book of Job is in the genre of wisdom literature. So just like Proverbs, just like Ecclesiastes and James, it has a lot to say about where we should look for wisdom and how we should recognize wisdom compared to folly. And when suffering comes, those who are being made wise will long for greater wisdom. They won't want to just keep responding indefinitely from their raw emotions. They'll want to find an anchor. They'll want to achieve some sort of ballast in the storm. And we know that our God is in the business of granting that wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So this is the, the request for wisdom is one prayer we know God will grant when we ask for it. But today we'll see that he often grants it through unexpected sources. And when that wisdom comes, it almost always challenges our current perspective. Now before his suffering, Job was no stranger to wisdom. He, he was considered wise. God himself said of Job in chapter 1 that he fears God. He turns away from evil. And Job never loses that foundation for wisdom. He says, this is Job himself in chapter 28. He says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So that's where Job stays throughout all of this. He has that foundation for wisdom. But what does that mean when you're stumbling numb through each day, when you're unsure even how to approach life anymore? What does it mean when there's hard choices to make, and harder realities to face. Intense suffering, it just has a way of making the things that we know feel cloudy and the application of them a little bit impossible. Suffering ups the ante. It it raises the stakes, so to speak. And so Job is understandably reeling, and he's going through the stages of grief. And so he says some things that even Job later, he, he realizes, oh, those were rash words. They were just wind. Now we see that at the end of the book, God doesn't fault Job for those rash words. Instead, um, he's patient with Job. He doesn't nitpick about Job's words all along. The three friends were different. They were nitpicking. They were attacking Job mercilessly for every misplaced word. So Job is kind of exhausted. He's beaten down by these accusations. But he doesn't give up on trying to grab hold of wisdom for his situation, trying to find a way out of the fog. And that's um, chapter 28. He gives an ode to wisdom. Job speaks of the surpassing value of wisdom, and he kind of wonders aloud, where, where can I find it now? 
And it's against that backdrop of Job seeking wisdom that then the character of Elihu emerges. Now, some people don't know quite what to do with Elihu within the larger story. Uh, Elihu, by many people, has just been lumped in to the friend category with the the three bad friends. They don't see much of a difference between what he has to offer and what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were saying earlier. Um, and, And that's because he does, at some points, acknowledge that the three friends aren't totally wrong about God's justice. Um, And we said that even last week. So Elihu, he affirms God is just. Elihu supports the truth that God does reward the righteous. He does punish the wicked. In chapter 34, verse 11, he says, For according to the work of a man, God will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. So it seems to be, at some points, oh, this is the same system of thought that the three friends were selling. But there is a difference. Elihu isn't wooden in his application of the principle like the three friends were. So they, they were just ready to draw that connection. Okay, Job is suffering, therefore he must have done great evil. But Elihu doesn't go there. He simply upholds the truth of God's justice. He, he says we have to remember God does reward good, God does punish evil. But we know that that's not all Elihu is saying. In chapter 32, verse 14, he announces that he's bringing a different view than the three friends, and he declares that he won't answer Job with their speeches. So Elihu himself makes that distinction. He may include some of their framework, but Elihu goes to different places with it, and he has much broader thoughts to share. Now, others doubt Elihu's usefulness because he does at some point seem to accuse Job of sin. But we know from chapter 1, God says that Job was blameless. Um, that three times it said that Job was blameless. And, and at the end of the book, God doesn't make Job offer any guilt offerings. But here's the thing. Elihu is not saying that suffering came upon Job because of previous sin. Rather, Elihu is addressing the sin that he's just heard, even while listening in on the conversation. Because Job, while he's more righteous than his three friends, he still hasn't been perfect within his response to suffering. And frankly, who could be? I doubt that I would respond better than Job, or probably not you either. So just because Elihu is correcting Job's communication while he's in pain and saying those rash words, we shouldn't take that out of context and just lump Elihu in with the three friends who condemn Job for sins that they imagined that, well, he must have done all these horrible things that led to his pain in the first place. We also have other clues that Elihu's words aren't misguided. There's a gap between him and the three friends, like I said before, and that gap is where Job's ode to wisdom takes place. Also, Elihu seems to be honored in the way that the narrator is introducing him. So it's not only his clan name that's mentioned, but also multiple generations of his genealogy are given. It seems to be implied like, hey, this is a guy worth knowing. Elihu's name means, my God is he. And so his his comments are radically God-centered, whereas the three friends, they kind of used God in their framework to explain how the world works. Elihu's main concern for Job is, is don't you put God in a box either by thinking that you can characterize him based only on your experience of suffering. So unlike the three friends, Elihu carefully listens to Job and he closely engages with Job's arguments in several places. And also before 
he corrects Job. Elihu ensures Job, like, hey, I'm just a man like you, okay? There's no need to feel threatened by what I'm about to say. And he states at one point that he desires to justify Job. That's very different from the goal of the first three friends. And finally, in, in chapter 42, we see that Elihu is not rebuked when the other three friends are. When God says, you know, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, these guys did not speak rightly of me like my servant Job did. Elihu isn't mentioned there. He's not corrected by God. So we're left to assume that Elihu has spoken much that's right about God. But that still doesn't mean that Elihu is the spokesman for wisdom that we would expect. If a wise counselor needs to be someone likable, Elihu doesn't necessarily match that profile. He's a young upstart. He's kind of full of himself. He introduces his comments and he talks about his right to speak for almost 30 verses before he actually gets into his argument. Now, it would be great if truth was only spoken by humble and really likable people. Um, but unfortunately, we don't live in such a world. And we can't just write off people who sometimes sound a little pompous, like a, like a first-year seminary student who has all the right answers but not quite the right character. So our highly confident friends, they, like Elihu, are still in process too. They're growing in self-awareness, but that doesn't mean that they may not have a perspective from God that he intends to use to round out our rough edges. And if a wise counselor needs to be calm and needs to be nice to talk a troubled person off of a ledge, well, Elihu doesn't fit that bill either. He's angry. Now, when you've, been, when you've suffered and you've also just been verbally assaulted by the three guys who you thought were your closest friends, you probably don't have much of an appetite for an angry person to come and, and keep trying to speak into your life. But chapter 32 says that Elihu is angry first at the three friends because they had found no answer even though they declared Job to be in the wrong. So that's good. You want a counselor to be angry at the people who are mistreating you. But it also says he's angry at Job because Job justified himself rather than God. So Elihu, he was listening carefully at the end of chapter 31 to how Job ended basically by calling on God to show up in an imagined courtroom. And Elihu is rightly offended by that. And he, he says it's unthinkable that God could be summoned in a way in, in that sort of way, just because Job subpoenaed him? Come on. Now, God loves Job, and we know that God will respond to Job and will be gracious with Job, but not because Job demands it. So the purpose of Elihu's chapters are really to confront Job's, um, you know, a little bit of pride and despair in how Job criticizes God out of frustration and, and He's here, Elihu is here to prepare Job to rightly hear God's reply in the last chapters. So Elihu, precisely because he's both for Job and he's also not afraid to sometimes stand against Job, he serves as a constructive forerunner to the speeches of God that will follow at the end of the book. And what we're going to see as we survey Elihu's comments today is that God often teaches wisdom in ways that surprise us. And in Elihu, we see four things. We see that a wise friend doesn't take your side unconditionally. A wise friend doesn't try to speak for God. 
A wise friend helps you to see God's freedom, and a wise friend helps you to see God's goodness. Now, first, Elihu shows us that wisdom is on no one's side. And so a true friend isn't someone who takes your side unconditionally. Elihu says, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. At one point, Elihu is so fed up with Job's language about putting God on trial, and he says, would that Job were tried to the end, because he answers like wicked men. And even in this, you can see that, that same patience we talked about with uh, Job and his wife, when Job told his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women. He didn't call his wife foolish. He just said, you're saying things that sound foolish right now. And similarly here, Elihu is calling out Job on the tone of his speech, and he says that he answers like wicked men. He doesn't call Job a wicked man. He doesn't just label him, but neither does he let him off the hook. He carefully engages with Job. So Elihu is going to correct Job for saying that he wished he was dead. He corrects Job for saying that God won't respond to him. He corrects Job for saying that based on how God has treated him, he might as well have sinned. He corrects Job for commenting that God treats the righteous and the wicked the same. And he corrects Job for coming dangerously close to scoffing at God in his pain. But unlike the three friends, Elihu doesn't just make up some imagined sin that must have led to Job's suffering, but he has heard some over-the-top complaints, and he cares enough that after Job has spoken like this, I mean, it wasn't just once. Job has had extended speeches like this nine different times in the book so far. Elihu now has heard enough. And we see here that good friends, they don't jump on our every rash word. We've talked about that before. But they also don't let us keep going on in a wrong direction forever. Elihu is angry at Job's bad friends, and a good friend will be upset at your bad friends. Those people are messed up in the bad counsel that they're giving. But a good friend eventually will also tell you to stop sinning in your response to your bad treatment. Because when we're sinned against, when people misrepresent us and misunderstand us, and they even use our misfortune to elevate themselves, great sin like that, of course, doesn't leave us unaffected. It makes us prone to sin as well in response. So accept a good friend's corrective warnings. A good friend will help you to see accurately how you've been wronged, but will also help you see anew the holiness of God, how your suffering doesn't somehow entitle you to just say or do anything that feels right in response. A wise friend isn't afraid to get in your face when you need it. Even if you've been hurt a lot recently, they still won't walk on eggshells around you forever. Their wise care will want to protect you from yourself. Now second, a wise friend doesn't try to speak for God. Elihu refuses to give Job a specific diagnosis. He refuses to say, Job, this right here, this is what your suffering is all about. And that's what the three friends were determined to do. They endeavored to be like the voice of God to Job, but in the end, they actually function more like the accusing and tempting voice of Satan. Elihu, on the other hand, he tries to broaden the conversation. He tries to bring up a number of ways that God works in the world, not just uniquely toward super evil people, but ways that God works in suffering for all mankind, for our protection and our good. 
And we see this especially in the latter part of chapter 33. Elihu talks about the diversity of ways in which God is at work in our lives, opening our ears to his instruction. And he mentions that God frequently warns people who are on a slippery trajectory. He interrupts life as usual and he makes them consider him and and keeps them from developing pride in the first place. God also has purposes in sickness too. Even though it feels like our flesh is wasting away, it can force us to reckon with what grieves God in our lives. It can also make us cry out for a mediator. That's a thought that we'll come back to a little bit later. So Elihu says that God can constructively lay out times like this in our life. Twice, three times, maybe even more. And if it has the effect of lighting us with the light of life, will we really shake our fist at God and say, he's the one counting me as an enemy? So Elihu isn't overly specific, but he helps to broaden Job's perspective to see that God operates like this all the time, and we often don't see the whole purpose as he does being the architect of our lives. Are you too eager when you're hurting, when you're suffering, for a friend to to just give me the answer, just tell me what I need to do? Well, a wise friend won't speak for God, but will point you to a number of things that Scripture says he could be doing in your life. And when you're the friend who's called in to help make sense of someone's suffering, are you too quick to give answers, too precise in your diagnosis of the situation? Do you think that it's the Christian's job to always have an answer? Are you afraid to just weep with your friend and say, I don't know either? Leave room for your friend to do business with God for himself or herself. Don't try to serve as a proxy like Job's three friends did. You can help your friends by going to God together in prayer. You can speak general truths about God, reminding them of what he's said in his word about life, about his people, about suffering, about himself but don't speak for God or attempt to give the authoritative word of the hour. Often those sorts of efforts say more about our love for ourselves than about our love for our friends. A wise friend doesn't try to speak for God. Third, a wise friend helps you to see God's freedom. By this, I don't mean the freedom that we have in God, though that's, that's a real thing, but what I'm saying is God's freedom in himself to be God. That God is not accountable to us. He is free to run this world in whatever way is best. So this is a big view of God and and it trusts him more than ourselves to understand what we truly need. God is free. He's not bound by the same expectations that we would have for a human friend or leader or provider. God is beyond criticism in his righteous judgments. So when Job objects that God won't answer me. Well, Elihu asks, should God be called to account by humanity? When he's quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him? For has anyone said to God, teach me what I do not see? So Job wants like an audible voice, some clear guidance, but Elihu shows him that God is free to communicate with us in any number of ways. Are we too busy looking for some clear sign that we ignore the way he could warn us, even in our sleep or in overheard conversations or in things we're exposed to throughout every day. And the point isn't to wait for some freaky thing to happen, but rather to realize that our free God, he uses everything. He nudges us constantly. He can can change us through wielding anything at all in all of creation. So we have no clue how much he really is 
communicating with us, really is guiding us when we feel neglected or, or when we're neglecting the clear teaching of his word. It doesn't mean that God isn't here. It doesn't mean he's not communicating. If there's one thing that we can never rightly accuse God of, it's being silent. Now, he may refuse to answer us for a time. He may refuse to, to answer us on our own restrictive terms. But our God has spoken in his living word. And he points to that even through how he freely wields all of creation. And again, Elihu speaks of how God is free to constructively shape the seasons in the life of a person. And I've seen this certainly in my own life. I can think of seasons when I was fine. I was on a trajectory that would have been okay. But after suffering, my world expanded in a way that never would have happened otherwise. And I see people who are never challenged in the way that I was, and I wonder if I hadn't suffered when I did, would I be satisfied with the same passing things that this person is? But instead, as Elihu puts it, he allured me out of distress into a broad place where there was no constraint. At other times, I'm ignorant or I'm foolish, but I don't know it. And God graciously just pulls the rug out from my approach to life and makes me start over. So Elihu sees this big picture that suffering could even be preventative in purpose. And even if not, even if we don't know quite what it's doing, he still denies that it's okay for Job to speak of his right before God. Elihu says, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, You have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. So God is free in his governance of the universe. He's not compelled to respond immediately when there's righteousness or when there's sin. In, in one sense, our good deeds don't give him anything, nor does our wrongdoing somehow harm him or inhibit him. And so Elihu challenges Job, teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Now Job needed this timely reminder that, that suffering doesn't mean we can put God on trial. That God doesn't answer to Job. And a wise friend will likewise remind us when darkness descends, when we're blinded by suffering, a good friend will remind us that neither can we draw up a case against God. He is free to do as he pleases. But in accepting the freedom of God to order our lives, we also dare not slip into believing that he's distant or unfeeling. So, fourth, a wise friend helps us to land on the goodness of God. An overarching theme for Elihu in chapter 33, is that God acts for humanity. He is seeking our good. He is benevolent. And, and he does all these things in a way that only he can see the merit of ahead of time. But as Elihu says, it's so that our soul will be kept back from the pit. Now, it's no surprise that the vast majority of humanity sees suffering as basically incompatible with good. Because they don't realize that there is an evil worse than the suffering that Job has experienced. 
and that suffering now could protect us or could protect others from that greater evil. They also don't realize that there's a good that's infinitely better than the good of a suffering-free life. And only when we see that dynamic, only when we see God's goodness and his desire to draw poison out of our lives, only then can we trust him and only then can we celebrate his goodness in using whatever means necessary to help us to know him more. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he wrote, The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are a masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he's being hurt. But we can rest contentedly in our sins. But pain insists on being attended to. So God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a world that is deaf to his goodness. And saying this it is not to agree with the three friends that see Job, you're being punished for some hidden sin. No, neither C.S. Lewis nor Elihu are saying that well, this is how God deals with big sinners. They're saying this is how God deals with humanity. God loves you and he wants more for you. All of us are in need of seeing God more clearly, sometimes in a way that can only come through seeing other things stripped away. And your suffering may not even be mainly about you. Like Job, there, there may not be any glaring sin in your life. Your suffering may be about rousing others in the deaf world. Not you necessarily. And that's the mistake that the three friends made. They saw God as this fierce judge coming down on a particularly evil Job in a unique way. But here's a trippy thought for you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says that even Jesus, though sinless, had to be made complete through suffering. And Elihu asks, what if this is a normal way that God draws humanity further up and further into life with him, burning away the perceptions that were holding us back because he is good and he wants the absolute best for us? When we trust that, then pressing in to know this benevolent God, even in our suffering, that will become our greatest desire. And this is exactly Elihu's point. He says, because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? So instead of reverting to anger at God or, or fatalistically saying, well, there's an impersonal force up there somewhere taking care of it, we ought to say, my God, what are you doing? The God who is my maker and my friend. Where is the God that I know and love? If only I could speak to him. If only I might find him. That's the sort of wrestling we see Job doing well throughout the book. And that sort of directed, prayer-filled waiting that that reflects the hope of an authentic Christian who knows that God is good. 
It's a long road for Job, and sometimes it's a long road for us in our suffering, and so we need wise friends who will keep pointing us back to that goodness insistently, stubbornly, pointing us to God's goodness until the day of your chapter 42 when you're able to perceive God's goodness again with your own eyes. Now, who is God going to use to speak wisdom like this into your life? Will you still receive that wisdom if it's from a patronizing family member or from that person with whom you've felt a strange sense of competition? Will you refuse what they say out of pride or out of annoyance? Will you listen even if what they say isn't flattering or if it has some hard truths for you? Will you humbly consider even when it doesn't give you a tidy package with which to understand God? Will you let the wise friend's words point you to the whole counsel of Scripture to consider him carefully? Will you let a wise friend take off the blinders that suffering often gives us, where we can only see our own experiences, only see our own pain? Now, Elihu speaks uh, in, we read this, this portion this morning, he speaks in vague terms about the possibility of God's mercy in times of suffering being seen in the person of a mediator in whom could be found a ransom for one's life. That's, that's crazy wording if you think about the trajectory of the whole Bible, right? The rest of the Bible goes on to fill in that category with much more detail. So for those who have claimed Jesus Christ as their mediator, they can rest assured that their suffering will not end in eternal death and that God is using every mysterious pain, every inexplicable heartache for redemptive purposes. And the good news for us on this side of Jesus Christ is that God's wisdom is more clearly revealed than it was even for Job. Because Colossians 2 says that in the person of Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we can look at the Gospels. We can see how Jesus lived. We can hear his very words, words of wisdom. And with the very spirit of Christ inside of us, he is with us to the end of the age. So we never need to feel like God is just leaving us without answers. We have a wise friend. Our wisest friend is Jesus. But his words don't only calm you. They don't only reassure you. Sometimes they confront you. Sometimes they shove an unwelcome mirror in your face. Sometimes Jesus says, grow up. Sometimes he says, get over yourself. Sometimes our wisest friend Jesus says, no, I, I know you want that answer, but you can't have it right now because it wouldn't be good for you. And there's way more going on here than you even realize. But whatever else he says... Jesus always says, welcome. His desire is to justify us. And always, always, he reminds us insistently, stubbornly, that God is much bigger than you know. God is much more free than you realize. And God is better than you could ever imagine. Our Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see those very things. We ask for greater grace to suffer well, to know a good friend from a bad friend, to never reject wisdom from you, and to be this kind of wise friend for others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.